In Bangladesh, some religious freedom is afforded in the nation's constitution, but there's still persecution against Christians. Edward Ayub says that's because the freedoms in the constitution aren't always carried out. All the police, they are not fully uh, aware of the constitution, or all the police, they are not fully obedient to the constitution and law. Some police are from very much Islamic minded, so they interpret the constitutional law in a different way. So it depends on the grassroots level people. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and we're in our studio today in Bartlesville, Oklahoma with Edward Ayub, and we are going to meet him. He is a brother in Christ from the nation of Bangladesh, has an amazing story of coming to faith in Christ. He is also one of our VOM partners in that country. He works with the Presbyterian Church of Bangladesh. He is also a leader in the Shalom Foundation, and we're going to talk about what those organizations do. Edward, welcome to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you very much. Talk a little bit about your background and the family that you grew up in, because it wasn't a Christian family. Yes, I was born and brought up in a Wahhabi Muslim family. And I used to recite Quran early morning, every day. I used to pray five times a day. So that was my family atmosphere I was brought up. What was the first time that you encountered a Christian or someone who wasn't a, a Wahhabi Muslim? Uh, I was in eighth standard at that time. One of my villagers, also my distant relative, became Christian. So that was the first time I came to know about Christians that they convert Muslim into Christian faith. And we started to hate him. He left the village, but because of his Christian faith, we started to hate the family. The whole village went against that family and isolated the family. So that was uh, my experience with hatredness against Christianity first I encountered. Now, you say that you hated him. Did you also kind of feel sorry for him? I mean, did you feel like he was confused or deceived or... Did you wonder why he would leave Islam and become a Christian? Yeah, as a Muslim, our understanding was that he got lots of money from the Christians, so Ah, he went to Christian faith. He was bribed. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, he was a betrayer of Islam, so that was our understanding. So everyone in the village hated him and hated his whole family. Yes, that's normal. Yeah, normal in Bangladesh, not normal here in the United States. Now, I know a few years after that, you were in university, and a Christian came and tried to witness to you. Tell us that story. What was your response? Yeah, I was fasting in the month of Ramadan. Uh, Being a university student, I still wanted to become one of the best Muslims. So I was fasting, and in one day, one Christian young man came to share the gospel with me. As I was fasting, I was in religious mood, I was offended greatly because I was uh, surprised to see his boldness to share the gospel with a Muslim in the fasting month of Ramadan. So I told him, why don't you come in the evening after breaking the fast? 
And he agreed. In the meantime, I invited some of my friends that Christian is going to come this evening. They were very happy and waiting for him. In the evening, we came out from the mosque and he came. I introduced him to my friends and they started to beat him. He was seriously beaten and injured. Then he sent him to his mission, putting him on a rickshaw, like a three-wheeled rickshaw. So mission. you gathered a bunch of friends. This Christian came and you beat him and injured him and then sent him home. Basically, get out yes. of here. We don't want to yes. see you anymore. Yes. And how did he respond? Uh, so after that, I was in some fear because I was thinking Christians uh, would go to the police and file a case because he was seriously wounded. But after a few days, he came again and I was shocked and I was uh, 100% sure that he came to take revenge <laughs> because that was my expectation as a Muslim. He is going to fight back with his friends or with police to arrest me. But he was smiling. He wanted to become a friend of mine. And uh, that was the first time I started thinking about Christianity in a different way, of course, positively. And all of my religious pride, my education as a university student, and my personality, I thought, went down into his feet, became worthless. <laughs> so I became interested to know about Christianity since then. Was it particularly bold of him to witness during Ramadan? It seems like that would not be the time you would go and try to share the gospel with, with Muslims. Yeah, of course he was bold. There was another thing. He was, uh, I realized that he was from a neighboring village, so which actually offended me much in a greater way because when I was in 8th standard, one of my villagers became Christian. Now I see another one from a neighboring village also Christian, so I thought, what is going on? <laughs> So I became very, very angry. So as a Muslim, you were offended that that people right around you would leave Islam and and follow Christ. Yes, yeah. But then eventually you left Islam and you chose to follow Christ. Yeah. How did did that happen? Yeah, so uh, we we beat him in 1982, and when he came back again with his love and forgiving heart, with a big smile— that changed me, and I started thinking about Christianity. I got a New Testament from him, and I started going to churches and Christian organizations to know about Jesus Christ more and more. In 1984, after two years of that incident, someone helped me to uh, have personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, accepted him as my Savior and Lord. What was it about the message of the gospel or the Christians that you encountered that brought you to the point of saying, okay, Islam is not the truth. Jesus is the truth. I'm going to follow him. What part of the gospel message or what part of someone's testimony kind of brought you over the edge to say, yes, I'm, I'm going to be a Christian? Yeah, in the beginning, uh, it was uh, not uh, the gospel, but in the beginning was his uh, living gospel could be <laughs> because of his love and forgiveness. Because as a Muslim, I would believe that uh, like... Uh, uh, if you show you one finger and show him two fingers, revenge, retaliation in Islam. But now I see a different testimony. So that has actually shaped me up. Then when I read the Bible, I started thinking about deeply, why have I been doing all these Islamic rituals very, very strictly since my boyhood? What is the purpose? And I have found out that well, I was to- in total darkness about my future. I was just doing that because of escaping from the judgment uh, of hell or punishment from Allah. So 
out of fear I was uh, following those Islamic rituals. But when I read the Bible, I, I found out that especially sin. In Islam, sin was uh, very lightly taken, and uh, I realized that at that time, uh, even uh, sin uh, uh, is not taught and talked much because they believe that uh, a prophet cannot commit sin, so they don't talk about much sin of Prophet Muhammad. When I read the Bible, I have come to know the clear uh, definition and description of how it came and what are the sins. Like to a Muslim, if, if you ask what are the sins, they would say lying, stealing, all these things are sin, but sin in the Bible is much more deeper. So when I came to know about the root and origin of sin and the consequences is extension to other like parts on every area of human life and nature. So I thought it's a horrible. So I felt first time that I am a sinner personally and uh, I have learned that Jesus Christ died for my sin. So when I was uncertain, I didn't have any assurance of future life or heaven, but uh, I have learned that someone died on the cross for my sin. I became interested to know him more and more. So it seems like you came to the point of realizing that that I can do all these rituals, or I can pray five times a day, I can fast during Ramadan, I can do everything I'm supposed to do, and that's not going to be enough to erase the sin that I have. Yeah, there's a teaching in Islam that you do it, but uh, you don't have any confirmation what is going to happen in the future. Even in the Quran, I have read that Allah, he can send a very good man to hell. Again, he can send a sinner to heaven, so it's a complete depend on him. So you die and you don't have any idea no. what's going to happen. It could go either way. Yeah, either way. So you made that decision. You came to faith in Christ. What was the response among your friends and family when you said, hey, mom, dad, friends, I'm not a Muslim anymore. I'm, I'm following Jesus now. After my conversion, I tried to hide for some time, even though I was happy to become Christian, but now meeting my friends and my mother, my father died a few years ago, so my mother and her brother and relatives, I started thinking myself in a very shameful position, how I am going to faith. So I just hid my faith, Christian faith. But uh, I couldn't keep it secret because the organizations, churches I visited, they got my address and I started sending Christian books <laughs> to my home. <laughs> and, and my uh, brothers and my relatives started to learn that maybe second one from the village has gone to betray Islam. <laughs> so the first one when I was in eighth grade. So I went home and I was not physically persecuted by my family because my mother's own uncle, he was a great Wahhabi scholar who has founded a madrasa and mosque in our area. So he's a very influential Muslim leader. So many went to him what to do with me. But he told, you just pray to Allah, don't beat him, try to convince him. So my relatives tried to convince me to go back to Islam. But uh, the relationship in my home became uh, very, very hopeless. Like uh, my, my mother started considering me as a foreigner. Wow. Even he couldn't offer me lunch. Just come and eat. Mm -hmm. That kind of openness is uh, totally lost. My brothers started treating me like a teacher. They're teacher with respect, not as a brother. 
You basically uh, became an outsider in your own yes, home. Yes, foreigner, foreigner to yeah. my home. Yeah, this is very, very shocking and painful. Yeah. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Edward Ayub. He is one of our partners in the country of Bangladesh. Edward, what does your ministry look like now? You've obviously, that was several years ago. You've come to Christ. You've been trained. What is it that you're doing today in ministry for the gospel? Yeah, after my conversion, I worked with Christian organizations to share the gospel with the Muslims. I worked with different organizations, and I think God has uh, built me through those experiences. But finally, when uh, I was praying very seriously about my country, and even some of my friends asked me sometimes, can you show one visible church among the Muslims? Maybe uh, 20 years ago, they asked, and it was shameful that we couldn't show. In our country, there are lots of underground believers, secret believers, but lots of evangelism distribution done in the country. But visible church was hardly seen. So God has put me a burden to plant visible church among the Muslims in Bangladesh. So that was my first burden. Let me interrupt just for a second, because I want to talk about why that's so significant, the fact that you know, in a village, there's a building with a cross on top, and the people can say, hey, that's a church. There's Christians that worship there, as opposed to, like you say, underground believers who maybe meet secretly, maybe they meet outdoors or in homes. Why is it so significant to have visible churches in Bangladesh? Underground believers, uh, if they are not grouped in one community, when pressure comes— storm comes, at that time they uh, compromise with faith. The loss of uh, violation of Christian ethics and compromise. So uh, uh, lots of backsliding, going back to Islam again when pressure comes because they uh, remain individual in a scattered way and throughout the country. And at the same time, uh, you know, building church, like in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. And in our situation, church must be visible with permanent physical structure because if five, ten believers group together in, in one home and persecution comes, Muslims can easily wipe you out. Or if you go to the police station to ask help, police would ask you, where is your church? Because in the mind of police, church means a building. In the mind of police, they think church means uh, like uh, lots of establishments. If you see, oh, we meet in a certain house with 10, 15 believers, they say, why don't you stop because this area is very sensitive? Or why don't you move to another village? Where, uh, there, where there is a physical church. Yeah. yeah. So once a physical church is built, then you have some protection from the government, right? Yeah. Is, is that you, correct? You are exactly right. I think you are exactly right. That's what we are experiencing right now. If you have physical establishments with a visible church, now nobody can wipe you out, drive you out. Now the job of the police is to protect you. That happened in the northern part of Bangladesh, our first visible church. Last year, eight months, government deployed a temporary police camp of four persons. So they protected our church for eight months. Wow. Because they cannot say to us, go away to some other place. Uh -huh. At the same time, when we work with the local believers, these believers, they think that maybe this mission 
would someday would forsake us when pressure comes. So they are highly demoralized. But when they see something visible with permanent structure, they are, their morale is high. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, we can trust on this mission. Because um, most of the cases of what happens in the mission field, you go evangelize, baptize, then you leave. When pressure comes, there is no one, no shepherd to shepherd these people. So they become frustrated, sometimes go back to Islam, their former religion again. But if you're strongly established in certain place, then these local believers, they think that we have some place to trust upon. That's why our goal is to plant visible churches with building, with cross and signboards so that everyone can see. That's what we are doing right now. So you've talked about the fact that once there is a visible structure, then the government protects it. So what what is the government position towards Christianity or Islam, or is there a, a state religion? Is the government bound to one religion or another? What's their position as far as the Constitution is concerned? Yeah, it depends on the nature of the government, of the political parties which are ruling the government. Yeah, we have one government which believe in secularism. Another government, they are pro-Islamic. So these two main So whichever party are, is in charge yes. at a time, it changes. Yes. So if, if the party that supports religious freedom is in charge, where does the persecution come from if it's, if it's not the government? Yeah, it's uh, like our constitution, a little bit unclear. Like it talks about religious freedom as subject to law and public order and morality. At the same time, you will see that our constitution starts with Bismillahi Rahman Rahim and an Islamic phrase. There's the Islamic cap of the constitution. At the same time, Islam is the state religion. So when all these elements of Islamism, they are in the constitution, but that's why it depends on the government. But at the same time, in the grassroots level, you know, our country is full of mosques everywhere. So the mosque-based, uh, like uh, locally, sometimes Sharia law is attempted to be implemented. And if any individual or families come to Christ, they're brought to the mosque and give, uh, given pressure under Sharia law to go back to Islam again or to beat him, persecute him. So even the constitution is little unclear, but sometimes if I talk about police, it depends on the mentality of the police. All the police, they are not fully uh, aware of the constitution, or all the police, they are not fully obedient to the constitution and law. Some police are from very much Islamic minded, so they interpret the constitution and law in a different way. So it depends on the grassroots level people, the authorities, villagers. So Muslim it sounds clerics. like it changes in different parts of Bangladesh. It could be very, very different yes. in how yes. it's enforced or what persecution. Yes. But it also sounds like it. most of the time it starts with your family or your neighbors yes. in the village. Yes, yes. Not necessarily the government. The it's government, the people yes. right around you. Generations after generations in the Muslim community, no Christian. Now you suddenly see one Christian or one family become a Christian. So the whole community thinks that that converted Christian or a betrayer of Islam should not have any right to leave because he has brought shame to the whole community. So this is very normal for their side. And the objective of persecution, 
actually is uh, to protect their own people because they think that if we beat this uh, new believer or if, if we persecute uh, very severely, then other Muslims won't dare to become Christian. They won't read Christian books. So to, to frighten their own people, to protect their own people, they generate pressure to the believers. And ultimately what they hope is if this person would renounce Christianity and come back to Islam, then the honor, their village honor would kind of be restored by that. Yes, the and, thing like that, yeah. That's uh, why even some, I have seen some Muslim converts when they die, because church is not yet still organized well among the Christians from Islam. And uh, some Christian believers, when they die, they are buried in an Islamic way. And Muslims are very interested to bury them through Islamic worship because they want to prove that that person was originally uh, not a Christian. Right. Actually, he, he pretended to be Christian for some temptation or job or some opportunities, but actually he was Muslim. Now we are burying him in an Islamic way. So Muslims try to prove that there was no Christianity in that area. You know, and it's interesting that a Christian can have a testimony even at their funeral, even after they're <laughs> yes. dead. Yes. They can have a Christian testimony by having a Christian funeral, having a Christian burial, that the Muslims can't say, see, look, at the end, he was a Muslim. He got yeah. buried as a Muslim. Yeah, that's why in uh, Muslim countries or Muslim-majority countries, Christian graveyard is a big issue. Burial is a big issue. And if you don't have organized visible church, who is going to do Christian funeral? So there will be church structure and, and, and the priest and uh, others to take care of that. So... Uh, I think organized church, visible church, is a good solution for that. So when the Christians face that kind of persecution at the village level or with their family, how do they respond? I know you've talked about the persecution. The Bible talks about persecution being an honor. How do our Bangladeshi friends respond when they're persecuted for Christ? Yeah, those, uh, those who are not well equipped with the biblical teaching of suffering and persecution— you know, throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, there are lots of teachings about persecution, lots of examples, prophets and other men and women of God in the Bible have been persecuted, many killed. If we uh, read Hebrews 11, there is a long list of these heroes of faith. So if they are not taught the Bible well, I think when persecution comes, they become very much frustrated and uh, they think to go back to former faith. That's why... I think uh, what uh, of the Martyrs is partnering with us and we are trying to teach our, even our pastors because pastors don't preach about suffering on the pulpit, very less. They, uh, they don't do that here in America either. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I, I was uh, speaking in one seminar and uh, some Christians told there is no persecution in Bangladesh. But when I told in last two years, five have been killed. Wow. Then... Persecution is a very daily way of life for every new converse in, in the country, in the rural areas especially. So uh, they are shocked to hear this. So we need to actually teach and train our Christians on how to respond to persecution and suffering on the basis of the biblical teaching. That's our big burden. And uh, we appreciate that the ministry like VOM is uh, partnering uh, with uh, providing resources on that matter. We've been talking today with Edward Ayub here on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. He is a gospel worker in Bangladesh, where believers face a lot of persecution, often 
starting with their own family members. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you'll check out the archives at vomradio.net. You'll find a rich resource that will help your heart for the world to grow and help you pray more effectively for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can find those archived programs at vomradio.net. While you're there, I hope you'll sign up for VOM's free monthly newsletter. Each issue will help you know how to pray and put faces and names on some of your persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Their testimonies will move and inspire you. You'll also read about hands-on ways that you can get involved in helping these brothers and sisters. Just visit vomradio.net and click on the link to sign up for a free subscription. Next week, Edward Ayub will be back with us. We're going to talk about befriending Muslims and showing them the love of Christ. And he says we don't need to be super cautious or be afraid to bring up our faith and the gospel. Uh, they are very much direct. They, they love direct approach. We're going to hear more about that next week right here on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.